This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following program has some offensive language. Though none of us would be here without the verb deployed, it's thought by many better not to hear the verb deployed. It's Wednesday, March 26th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, Vladimir Zelensky became the first head of state to address the U.S. Congress from inside an active war zone. Just the fact of his presence was impressive. His words were inspirational. Members of Congress were seen wiping away tears as he invoked U.S. history to underline the precarious place that his country is in. Remember Pearl Harbor, terrible morning of December 7, 1941, when your sky was black from the planes attacking you. Just remember it. Remember September the 11th, a terrible day in 20, 2001, when evil tried to turn your cities, independent territories, in battlefields. It works because it connects. And Zelensky has said so the world over. He's been on a tour of the Western democracies, first hitting the EU. Two revolutions, one war, and five days of full-scale invasion of the Russian Federation. A week and a day later, he spoke to the House of Commons in the UK. About the 13 days of war. A week after that, to the Canadian Parliament. Our feelings over the last 20 days. 20 days of a full-scale aggression. And today, to the United States, he spoke once more of how his nation has greatly suffered. Right now, at this moment, every night, for three weeks now. Zelensky's an excellent communicator. He has a compelling and sympathetic message. But in each venue, he seeks out the empathies of the audience, repeatedly calling the leader of Canada, Justin. Justin, can you imagine? Justin, you know we're friends. Evoking there an attack on the CN Tower or the Ottawa airport. In the UK, he evoked Churchill saying, we will fight in the forests, in the fields, on the shores, in the streets. And here before Congress, there were references to US history, to Mount Rushmore, saying at one point, I have a dream. Zooming out, I began to think of this as a desperate life or death roadshow. I don't mean sideshow or dog and pony show. The roadshow, that presentation given to moneyed audiences in order to acquire funding. That's exactly what's going on. Pitching the Western powers as one pitches angel investors for seed or series A funding. And Zelensky's good at it. He fits his argument to his audience, and he absolutely has to do it. That's embodying leadership. But what can we say of the fact that the West seems to require this? Is it that we all need flattery or to be pleaded with in ways special just to us? Actually, I have a non-cynical take on that. Yes, we could have all watched the first speech to the EU and said, that's all I need to know, here's the funding. And to a large extent, it was all we needed to know. 
But Zelensky is, remember, speaking to democracies. And these presentations all serve to rally the will of the people. Garnering the support of the people is the process by which Zelensky will secure support for his fight, but it is also why he's fighting. Zelensky asked for a no-fly zone, which is unlikely given the risks, but he also asked, through his words and a wrenching video montage, for support in other ways. And he used his rhetoric and his framing to get us to see that his struggles are our struggles. The our is the EU, and then the UK, and next Canada, and now the United States. And along the way, we, the countries of the West, are all defining the hour a little bit broader every time. On the show today, in the spiel, the Senate went ahead and quickly passed permanent daylight saving time. I like it. But first, we continue our talk about productive disagreement with Todd Cashdan. You know me. I like to push back, if only to stress test the arguments before me. I do it respectfully and productively, I think. But there are better and worse ways to get to a productive outcome, as we discuss with the author of The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively, Todd Cashdan, up next. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Yesterday, we heard from the author of The Art of Insubordination, Todd Cashdan, about things like the pointlessness of arguing about who is the more principled rebel and how to govern yourself after you really have altered societal norms. So now we're going to get into some bigger things. Like, what's better if you have to be resilient on the individual level in the face of intractable systems, or should you try to fight the intractable systems? How to know which intractable systems might be tractable. That's a tough one. As was the place I started our conversation. I asked Todd about the more romantic version of dissent. That if we just all had an accurate gauge on how common dissent was, we realize that we agree more than we disagree. Nice when it happens, but come on. It doesn't really happen that often. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why I felt compelled to spend six years working on this book is because we have a societal deficit in courage and we need the courage to disobey, but we have to have the intelligence to know when and how we need to know. We have to be audience centric and realize, yes, it's great that we're civil and yes, it's likely we're going to get incivility thrown at us. I don't need to go online and every day see that someone called me a racist and a sexist and homophobic and transphobic. And for that reason, just that fear, that trepidation, It's enough to keep people at bay. And this is why examples such as Joe Rogan, and I know this is controversial to bring this up, it's less about the Joe Rogans and the J.K. Rawlings. It's more about if people with this level of status can be crushed by thousands of people online, what does that say about the 18-year-old working for Verizon? 
yeah. who's being mistreated by their boss that they can say anything. They look at that and say, I better just shut up. Like I just saw a bunch of women being mistreated. I'm being physically mistreated, but if they can be harmed, what does that say about me? So I'll channel a good percentage. I, I agree with you. I've lived some of that, but a good percentage of the audience is like, okay, Joe Rogan and J.K. Rowling crushed online, criticized, but they're all either billionaires or hundred millionaires and continue to go on with their work. Yeah, and just and just to make sure that I broaden this out, so it's not that I want to. I'm intentionally bring up these controversial examples, and I'm glad you are as well because they help us think. I think of them all as test studies to stress test. How do we have productive, constructive dialogue when there's extreme emotions that are being evoked here and, you know, very divergent political ideologies at play. I mean, mm-hmm. I can relate. Go on. So when we, when we talk about Joe Rogan and J.K. Rowling and we talk about how Twitter is used as a device to solve problems, there's such a sense of immediacy. So, you know, the idea of scrolling through the files of what each of us have done and said over the course of the past 20 years is not a good faith approach to making to resolving a problem or creating a precedent for how to deal with this in the future. And, and there's a question about what do you do when you gauged in less than satisfactory behavior or attitudes in the past and you have improved your personality, you have evolved as a person, and you've been growing and expanding, and you are no longer that person. How do we actually provide grace and charity? And, you know, we just saw, you know, Desmond Tutu just died, who was, you know, working with Mandela. He was all about reconciliation. How do you create a world? And I'm talking about microcosms, school systems, organizations, um, you know, your community where you allow someone to re-enter society. Like what are the parameters that you let someone in as opposed to this idea that we are living in a medieval time and we can banish someone outside of the kingdom. We have to find a better way. And that's kind of, you know, psychology has offered tools for how to do this, but they aren't short fixes, which is what people ask for. Immediate boycotts and immediate immediate deplatformings is what people ask for. That doesn't solve problems and it creates horrible precedents. So what about the phenomenon? This has to some extent taken place with Joe Rogan. There are, and, and there are many other examples where the, the following set of circumstances would apply. There's a lot of anger. There's maybe pent up anger, ill will, suspicion, and what you see in a moment is an airing of grievances or a purging. So I perceive it as there are legitimate complaints about many of the things that Joe Rogan did um, with regards misinformation. And now we have, okay, let's also get out the fact that he's had racist utterances of uh, specific words, different kinds of thoughts. Let's get it out there. Let's purge it. Is that usually beneficial or is there is there a catharsis to that generally or is that more detrimental than not? Um, so, you know, one of the things about this is it is cathartic. And I think that's one of that's that's one of the big gains. And I think the way that you frame that is exactly how people have to think. There is a checklist of things in the short term that you will benefit from purging. And there's a checklist of things in the moderate and long term that you are obstructing as a function of seeking that cathartic relief. Like we know from Roy Baumeister's research back in the 80s that catharsis when you feel anger, irritability or rage or fury 
it does not quell aggression, it increases aggression in the future. So it makes you more prone to treating people in the outgroup with hostility, and it's more prone to have stronger, non-permeable boundaries of who you see as your friend and who you allow in. And just to make that less nerdy and less complicated, it's basically saying, I have stricter rules now of who I think is someone that I respect and appreciate, and I'm pushing more people out to the outskirts. There is nothing good society-wise, especially if we value diversity, to start creating less permeable boundaries that someone who's not one of the anointed ones has a chance to come in. Because, you know, one of the there, there are unintended side effects of how society improves, and we have to understand this. There are always trade-offs. You know, one of the things, for example, about having better standards for women in the workplace, you know, and which is fantastic, right? Less harassment, um, you know, less leering and less kind of just, just gross, you know, inappropriate gestures. I'm raising three daughters. All of that is good. Here's one of the unintended consequences over the in terms of economic mobility of human history. One of the quickest ways that, and, and most frequent ways this happened was someone in a leader position having a romantic relationship with someone subordinate to them. And then that led to a quick economic mobility, not just for the subordinate, but for their family and for their future generations. We have cut off an entirely frequent common strategy for economic mobility in the world. And the question is, not so much about this exact example, but when we make changes, can we notice that, the, how can we reduce the trade-offs that have costs that are problematic to those most marginalized and most at the margins of society? Now I want to uh, ask you about the lab, the well-being lab. Um, I commend listeners to go and check it out. Uh, it's attached to your website. But And you have many strategies, many um, studies about personal well-being in general. Uh, obviously, we're all affected by our environment. In general, is the path to change mostly within the power of the individual or in 2022 in America, given our ways of communicating, our devices, our not just social media, these these anxiety producing tools in our pockets, also the reality of circumstances. How much of that is getting in the way of the happiness or the well-being that we could achieve? Let me ask the question more simply. If you had to have one strain of advocacy would it be to teach people to cultivate well-being on their own, or would it be to reform systems to help people cultivate well-being? Let me start with this. Let me tell you what science tells us are some of two of the biggest barriers to individual well-being. And both of them are affected by circumstances and they're affected by the individual. Number one, um, Problematic social comparisons. One of the reasons that Scandinavian countries and Costa Rica, as a bonus, are the happiest places in the world is because <laughs> culturally, they don't have the social comparison built up that we have. You don't have people that are working at YouTube or, you know, or, or insert Silicon Valley company mm -hmm. where you have a full awareness that you are not making the same amount of money as people that have a similar education and background as you. 
and you are comparing yourself to other people. And we know because scientists have asked, are you willing to have a $10,000 pay raise right now? But in one condition, everybody else gets a $15,000 pay raise. Invariably, the majority of people will say, I want no pay raise because I don't want to make $10,000 extra if everyone else makes $15,000 extra. Freaking crazy. Like, yeah. I yeah. would like an extra $10,000. That is a lot of cool trips to, you know, to go to Thailand and do some stand-up paddleboarding and do some surfing outside, uh, you know, the Pacific or, or Ocean. Or to Costa Rica and uh, admire the happy people there. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Just, stare, just stare at them and wonder <laughs> That's how, right. why. So, why? um... We, you know, it's it's not just Instagram, it's not just social media, it's that we are constantly looking for people that are more socially attractive than us. Mm-hmm. It's better sense of humor, better storytellers, better abdominal muscles, um, more equanimity under pressure. They make more concise statements when they're on a podcast as opposed to me who's bortacious. <laughs> you know, whatever it is, we're making social comparisons. The first thing that comes to mind is part of it's internal about, you know, lessons from 2000 years of stoicism in terms right. of how can we lessen our ego as we walk through the world. And part of it is we have these technological platforms that push social comparison into our face and it's curated information. Well, I was going to say part of it is internal. We as Americans compare ourselves to others and feel unequal. But part of it is economic. America does have more income inequality than the Finns. So the Finns are noticing it less, but there's also less to notice. Right. But what's interesting is even at the low ends of economic inequality, you just, mm-hmm. just got to open one of those 10,000 page Steven Pinker books and you realize is that the the serious reduction in poverty over the past 80 years is at the point where we're getting close we're getting close to zero in terms of poverty we've just what happens is we keep altering our standards of what is an acceptable level of income and living style and we forget this there's there's actually a term for this it's a, a couple of french research, researchers call this social cryptomnesia horrible scientific term no, I like it. <laughs> um, so social cryptomnesia is that we forget who is who is the one that, that gave us benefits in our world today and in our personal lives today, especially if that person is not someone that we identify with ideologically. And so you think about some of the benefits in society, national highway system. You've got um, you've got child protective caps on prescriptions. I mean, the amount of kids that were saved by just just a few New York state senators that actually that actually really led at the helm to make sure that happens. And once people learn that the people that gave them these benefits in society is the other political ideology of what they identify with, their initial reaction is they start to discount those benefits. But there's something else that they discovered, these French researchers. How do you respond to someone forgetting that the benefits were the cause of someone that is ideologically or different from you? Now, one way of responding to this is you can actually treat them as that, listen, you're discriminatory. You only appreciate people that have the same political view as you. Or you can have a sense of charity and saying, listen, how can we remember everything? Like, not everyone is a student of human history. Like, you mm-hmm. forgot. It's normal. Like, it's okay. But hey, now you have the knowledge. 
Now that you know this, maybe you'll think differently. What they found was when you allow people to actually just have an out, give them an out and say, it's a forgetful, normal, human, valuable behavior. People are more respectful of people with different ideological views. And if you treat them as if they're discriminatory and assume the worst in them, then they're going to show an increase in extremism, increase in polarization, and increase in intolerance. What do we do in society right now? We lean towards discrimination and less towards human fallibility. Okay, you are this guy, you run the well-being lab, you're great at disagreeing productively, constructively, but you do it all at George Mason University. And what I know about George Mason is they embrace somewhat heterodox thinkers. I like Brian Kaplan. I definitely like Tyler Cowen. I like you. You don't seem to be people who are, you know, your typical professors at, I don't know, an Oberlin or an Evergreen. And that's my question. Could even with your techniques of understanding those who are different from you, could you exist and be doing Doing this at a you know an, an an obergreen type university, a different setting. So here's the thing: as someone who's been there 16 years, you've named all of the heterodox thinkers that are appreciated. I can tell you firsthand experience. I have faced great tension, strife, difficulty by having views that are not not as progressive as some of the other characters who are faculty members at George Mason University, and so. I live this work because I believe that one of the biggest toxins in culture is that people falsify what they believe to fit in and be likable. And then once that conversation ends, they go to their small group of close friends and have the real conversation. And you know who doesn't get invited to those conversations? People on the margins. Yeah. You know, people of a different race, people of a different socioeconomic status people who have bizarre interests, people who have purple hair, they don't get invited to these conversations that happen. And so we have to prevent those conversations. And the only way to do it is can, can you provide behavioral evidence that people will not be penalized or punished for disagreeing and offering questions of conventional ideas and the orthodoxy of whatever that group is. And as soon as you punish somebody, no matter what you say about how psychologically safe the culture is, we know from your behavior that this place is not safe for, for ideas and questions that deviate from the norm. Todd B. Cashdan is a professor of psychology at George Mason University. Uh, his official bio says he's published over 200 scientific articles and his work has been cited over 32,000 times, 32,002 because of this two-part interview. The new book is The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. Thanks so much, Todd. Uh, great talking to you. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. 
Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now the spiel. What a bright and sunny day it is. Of course, there is a war in Ukraine and interest rate uncertainty and global warming. Obama has COVID. I just found out that the L.A. fire chief who was drunk on the job was cleared of wrongdoing because he called in sick the day he wound up working to fight the Palisades fire. Anyway, it still is sunny where I live because, A, I live in daylight saving time. We all do, except some weird places like Arizona and uh, Hawaii. Hawaii is not weird. Arizona is. Isn't that odd? But now. In a rare act of senatorial problem solving, the world's most deliberative body has deliberated and decided to go all daylight saving all the time. Standard time has going for it, well, the branding advantage, the default, it's nice to be called the standard. And, you know, farmers like it. America had a lot more farmers when daylight saving time was adopted. But now the voices of all the hay haulers and teeth squeezers, they've been drowned out by 327 million non-farmers. There is another constituency that I'm going to get into at great length about people who supposedly don't want daylight saving time all the time. And that is the kids, the kids who are walking to school. Once all the kids walk to school and apparently in the 70s, drivers were just mowing them down and crashing into them. It's probably not true, but there were a lot of articles about that, how darker mornings meant dead children. The question is, knowing this, why did the Senate get together and pass without really any debate this measure? The first reason is that the dead children argument, as I'll get into, doesn't really hold much water. The second point is, daylight saving time all the time, very popular. Political scientists point out that popularity of initiatives doesn't really correlate well with the possibility of passing initiatives. But I say the real reason this passed and passed so quickly, kind of surprised people, is that the issue didn't have time to become partisanized. There were no clear sides as to what's the inherent Republican position and what's the inherent Democratic one. Marco Rubio was a co-sponsor. Patty Murray was a co-sponsor, a Republican from the most southeasterly point in the United States and a Democrat from the most northwesterly one in the continental United States. I mentioned geography because perhaps even more than party alignment, latitude alignment on the earth matters a lot in this particular issue. But that's my point. It wasn't really an issue. It wasn't really an argument. It wasn't even a debate. The measure passed by unanimous consent because no one had quite figured out how to put the other party on the hook and make them squirm by 
fixing them to one side of the argument versus the other. Sometimes you don't have to do this with an issue. It's just so apparent what a Democrat would say and has said, what a Republican would say and has said. Sometimes an issue is murky, but quickly sides emerge. I've always said that getting an inoculation didn't have to be inherently a Democratic argument versus a conservative argument. Getting conservatives penchant for cleanliness and hatred of infection, given the Democrats, some Democrats' suspicion of vaccines. But that is how it played out. With daylight saving time, things just move so quickly. We got a position that I think you can tell I really like. I can't even tell what would be the inherent conservative position on daylight saving time all the time. Okay, we know I mentioned it's good for rural dwellers, so that is slightly more conservative, but they're a very small group. On the other hand, it is a regulation, and conservatives are against regulations. Republicans are older than Democrats, generally, and putting the clocks back or forward is, quote, just the way we've always done it. Maybe that's a conservative way of thinking about it. On the other, other, other hand, a Republican president, Richard Nixon, did once temporarily suspend daylight saving time. Follow the sunset. So what I'm saying is there's no natural D or natural R on this one. And the Senate, having talked a little bit about it in past years, really did move quickly before it could become a flashpoint on MSNBC or Fox. Now, the upside of passing legislation without a fight is that the legislation passes. But the downside is just legislation and legislation that people like passing isn't the best thing for parties. Parties get more credit when they pass legislation above the objections of their rivals. Because come election time, you want to have the clear differentiation between the parties so that you could say, I, as a member of the party, did that, and also they oppose that. Individually, there's some downsides to passing legislation really quickly. One is you can't do those hits on MSNBC or Fox. Senators like doing those. They get support and acclaim for bravely defying their rivals. You can't make the speech if you're a senator that you're just itching to make. It's a speech that I kind of want to make too. It's a speech that goes like this. I say this, the time has arrived in America to get out of the shadows of sometimes standard, sometimes daylight savings time and to walk forthrightly into the bright sunshine of daylight saving time all the time. That source, as you political wonks know, historians, that was Senator Hubert H. Humphrey at the 1948 Democratic Convention making an acclaimed speech that helped him politically about a cause, civil rights, that didn't come to fruition for almost 20 more years. But with this, the daylight saving time, all the legislation might not have to wait that long. There is or are some hints that things might not go as smoothly for the bill in the House of Representatives. Nancy Pelosi didn't explicitly cheer it, and more concerningly, Steny Hoyer, the number two Democrat, seemed opposed, judging by some of the arguments he put forth, arguments that seemed rooted in 1981 when he first joined Congress. He was called the boy wonder then, even though he was 40. So he said, how are people going to feel at seven o'clock in the morning in December when they put their kids on the street to catch the school bus and it's dead flat dark. I caught that quote in a Washington Post article by Aaron Blake. His piece was 900 or so words. It mentioned children at the bus stop four times. No counter argument was given other 
than children at the bus stop. No getting hit by cars or falling into ditches due to low visibility, just having to wait for the bus before sunrise. But how big a problem is this? Come with me on a deep dive that you didn't ask for. I tried my hardest to find authoritative statistics. They don't exist. But here's what I did find. First, from the National Center of Education Statistics, which showed that the percentage of children bust has been declining steadily since the mid-80s, when it was slightly more than 60% of the children who go to school took the bus to school. Then I found another article from a Safe Streets Advocacy Organization that found in the year was uh, 2004-2005, which was the most recent year for statistics, they found 55.3% of children K through 12 took the bus to school. But I triangulated that with another finding, some more recent stats in 2007-2008, it had already shrunk to 54.6. This is the trend. Every couple years, the percentage of kids who took the bus to school lowered. At this rate, it seemed to me that we were going to be under half of students actually take the bus to school. I had one more statistic. The U.S. Bureau of Transportation in 2016 looked at kids who traveled over two miles to school, and at the over two-mile mark, the students are evenly split between taking the bus and being driven in a private vehicle. So therefore, I assume that at closer distances, the percentage would be fewer taking the bus because you'd have to account for everyone who lives close enough to walk. So this all leads me to believe that the majority of students today don't even take the bus to school. Also, you know, sunrise today in Houston, it's one of the latest days for sunrise, given that we just did the daylight saving time spring forward thing, 7.42 a.m. That's late, but in Houston, middle schools and high schools start at 8.30. In Miami, elementary school starts at 8, middle schools and high schools are later. There are no dark bus stops in many Sunbelt cities and states. I just named the seventh and fourth largest districts in America. Those kids waiting for buses won't be doing it in the dark. True, New York and Chicago, they're literally more benighted in the start times of their schools. But my point is that so few Americans will be subject to the only articulated objection to the proposal that kids have to wait for the bus in the dark. Maybe 20 million kids will have to do that for part of the year and another 3 million farmers. What I'm saying is 93% of the population won't be affected by the change, except to have more blessed rays of sun at 5 and 6 p.m. So I say do it, House of Representatives. Bring up that legislation. Get behind it. Pass that bill, and it's okay if you spread the credit as long as you're also spreading the sunshine. That's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is The Gist's senior producer. Michelle Pesca rigorously enforces the Peach Fish production no-fly zone. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>